Thanks so much, Pastor Steve. Hi, everyone. It's uh, delightful to be with you. Yes, my accent, my friends say that it makes me sound smarter than I really am. Uh, but it is great to be with you. I, I'm sorry that I didn't get the dress code memo. I'm feeling a little bit over, overdressed and my leather shoes, etc. would have been loved, would have loved to wear my, my rainbows and my board shorts. But um, I think this is, this is just a, a great thing that you're doing. Um, the church really is built on the foundation of Christ and then on the foundation of leaders, servant leaders who take their cue from Christ. And so Pastor Steve asked me to, to preach on the heart of a servant leader. And I'm going to read from Philippians 2, that famous passage where in, in verse 1, uh, Paul the Apostle talks about our attitude being the same as Christ Jesus. I think you're going to hear from that passage tonight. I'm going to pick up in verse 17. But Paul says, our attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus, who did not grasp at godliness but emptied himself, taking on the nature of a human servant, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And I'm going to pick up in, in verse 17, where really Paul, the apostle, gives three human examples of people, leaders, servant leaders, who are taking his advice, who are living with a similar attitude to that of Christ Jesus, our ultimate model of servant leadership. And one of those examples is Paul himself. And uh, secondly, we're going to look at Timothy, who he calls his son. And thirdly, Epaphroditus, who he calls a brother in the Lord. So let's just pray, and then I'm going to read this passage. Father, we thank you for every single person who's come here, who's taken out time uh, on a weekend from watching sports or hanging out with friends, family. Uh, we thank you that this family you are building, thank you so much for their ninth birthday. Uh, we, we honor you, Lord. You are the one who's begun this good work. You will complete it. And, and I pray, I ask, that as your spirit illuminates the word that he inspired, that you would catalyze your people uh, to serve and lead like you did. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. 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 Verse 17, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should all be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not of those of Jesus Christ, but you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me, and I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill 
near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I'm the more eager to send him therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. I'm in the seventh year of a master's degree and it's been a long slog. And uh, I'm doing it distance, so I'm doing it by myself. I'm like the long distance runner. And every month or so I travel up to a cabin in Lake Gregory uh, near Lake Arrowhead uh, that a kind friend owns. And uh, he gives it to me for uh, a night and a day each month so that I can uh, pray, hit my books, and submit an assignment. And uh, I've been doing that for a couple of years. Uh, the first time I went, I was just so jazzed by this gift of this warm, comfortable cabin up in the woods that I could uh, study in and uh, have peace and quiet in. And I was deeply surprised to find that they actually had a gift, gift basket for me in the cabin. Not only did I have this warm, incredible, uh, safe cabin in the woods, there was this gift basket with, with coffee and chocolate and like a little Lake Arrowhead mug and uh, it was delightful. And I was so surprised by this, it was beyond what I, I thought. And the next month I, I drove up and I found myself thinking, I wonder if there's gonna be a gift basket for me this time. I'm really grateful for the cabin, but I wonder if there's gonna be a gift basket, and there it was. And it was even better than before. This time there was candy, and there was uh, uh, crisps, and, and coffee, and, and I mean, it was just, just amazing. And, and the third time I, I went up, I found myself thinking, I wonder what is gonna be in uh, my gift basket this year, this month. And sure enough, there, there was a gift basket and it had all the, all the normal good, goodies. And as time went by, I became far less aware of the gift of the cabin and uh, far more looking forward to my gift basket. And then the day, of course, arrived when I arrived at the cabin and there was no gift basket. And I was really upset. I was really disappointed. In fact, I was quite grumpy. And I felt God speak to me about it and remind me of the gift of the cabin. I felt God prompt me and say, actually, that's what you sometimes like with the gift of the gospel, gift of salvation. I have given you shelter. Jesus has given you shelter from the wrath of God through the cross. Jesus has provided warmth and a home with the family and the Father. And yet there have been some other gifts that have been added to my life. Uh, gifts of a house and a wife and, and children and a church and a ministry that's growing and a car and a city we, 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 we live in, etc. And I felt God say, actually, you have become a little bit entitled. That's the gift basket. You've forgotten the cabin. The cabin is my salvation, the gift of my grace. And sometimes God, as a good father, will actually remove the gift basket, those things that are added to our life so that we can savor the gift of the cabin again, the gift of his salvation. Have you ever gone through a time like that when actually those added benefits to your life have actually gone? And initially you've been grumpy, but then you've come back to the gift of God's salvation. That was a little bit like what Paul was going through in prison. He was writing 
from a Roman prison to the church in Philippi that he had planted. And uh, he, he didn't have freedom. He relied on others for food and for money. Uh, he couldn't travel to the churches that he loved. And yet this was a, a letter full of joy and thanksgiving. He, he, he just, it's dripping with joy and thanksgiving. And you just realize that Paul, the gift basket has been taken away, but actually he is so rejoicing in the gift of the gospel, the gift of salvation. He's overflowing with it. And I wanna say that you as leaders are not just volunteering in your life groups, home groups, greeter teams, worship teams, children's ministry, etc. You are being inconvenienced willingly because of the gift of the gospel. All you do is a response to the incredible gift of God's grace in Jesus Christ. And we do it in view of his mercy. And I wanna encourage you and thank you because you're doing it, actually making war against a kind of convenient Christianity that always expects the gift basket to be there. You expect, they expect everything to be laid on. They expect church to be for their benefit. And everything must work, otherwise they'll go and find another church. You're not just serving, it's vital that you're serving, you're actually making war against convenient Christianity, cultural Christianity. May I applaud you, and may I encourage you to keep going. He who began a good work will be faithful to complete it. We can only keep on going if we keep on reminding ourselves of the incredible gift of the cabin, God's salvation. I want to look at, at three aspects of the heart of a servant leader that, that are exemplified in Paul, we see it in Timothy, and we see it in Epaphroditus. Paul has grasped the inconvenience of faith in ways that I certainly haven't, in ways that you certainly haven't. Paul has grasped what Dietrich Bonhoeffer described as the call of the Christian that when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Christian service is actually Christ bidding us come and die. And I've found, having led in church for around 20 years and served as a volunteer before that, that there are times when serving the people of God is really, really satisfying, really encouraging, and other times when it just feels a little bit like dying. Any of you had a little bit of a year of like that? It's like this has felt a little bit like death. Yeah? Even if you've seen life in other people, for you, it's felt a little bit like death. Pastor Steve can close his eyes as I ask you to lift up your hands. But Paul is, is showing that, that he is walking the talk in terms of our attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus, who did not grasp, who didn't reach for a higher position, but emptied himself, taking on the nature of a, of a human servant. He says in verse 17, I am being poured out like a drink offering. This is costly to him. Paul, in view of Christ being poured out on the cross, is now being spent, poured out on this church, even from prison. Have you ever got a letter from anyone in prison? It's not generally worrying about you out there. It's saying, will you worry about me in here? And yet Paul is so selfless. He's an example of selflessness being poured out. He's worried about them. 
He says this, verse 19, I hope to send Timothy that I too may be cheered by news of you. He's, he's longing for news of them. And then he says in verse 28, I am anxious for you. Isn't that interesting? I don't know how many of you have read Paul's letter to the Philippian church, but actually in chapter four, he talks about being anxious for nothing. And I look and I say, Paul, what are you on about? Are you a hypocrite? You say be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, cast your cares on Christ, peace of God, passes all understanding. You know the, the verse I'm talking about. And here he says, I'm anxious for you. What is Paul teaching us about servant leadership when he says, even though I'm in prison, I'm not wrapped up in myself, I'm anxious for you, I'm worried about you. N.T. Wright says about that verse, he says, joy does not mean we are exempt from the multiple dimensions of human emotion. In other words, Paul is rejoicing in Christ. He's finding his peace in Christ, but I think back then if you ask Paul, why do you say I'm anxious for you? I think he'd say, I am rejoicing, but my well-being is bound up in the well-being of the churches. When they do well, I'm doing well. And when they're not doing well, I'm not doing well. He said to the church in Colossae, my dear children for whom I am in the pangs of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, since you are standing firm in the Lord, now I truly live. What am I talking about, about Paul's anxiety? Paul has a godly investment. He has a godly investment in these people. And a servant leader is relationally invested. A servant leader is not just on duty and then off duty. A servant leader's welfare rises and falls with the welfare of those that you are serving. I often find that in the church we lead, there are people who are incredibly faithful with tasks, but they kind of clock in and clock out. Paul never clocked in and clocked out. Paul never had an on-duty, off-duty mentality. Paul faced daily the pressure of all the churches. Now you might say, well, I'm not Paul, neither am I. But he's giving us a glimpse into the heart of Christ who was relationally invested in the people that he served. Think about Jesus. When Lazarus died, you just think, yeah, Jesus is gonna do a mighty resurrection miracle. Yeah, but before that, he wept, Jesus wept. The original actually says, it, it's, it's the sense of he, he wept so strongly that it sounded like a horse snorting. You go, how does that work? He was gonna raise him from the dead. Yeah, but he felt deeply. He was emotionally, relationally invested in the people he served. Think of Jesus sitting, looking out over Jerusalem, crying, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you. He wept over a dead friend, he wept over a broken city. He looked at the crowds and had compassion on them. Paul is speaking 
the language of parenthood here. He's talking about Timothy, my son, and Epaphroditus, my brother. And my friends, if the church is a family, and God is our father, and Jesus is our brother, and these men and women are brothers and sisters, it means we cannot just be task oriented. We cannot clock in and clock out. Actually, when they rise, we rise with them. And when they fall, we sink with them. I'm not talking about a depressive kind of fallenness, but I'm talking about a relational investment. Do you know that statement, a parent is only ever as happy as their saddest child? That's something of Paul here. He was relationally invested. Can I ask you to think of the of the sphere of your leadership or servanthood and the people that you serve. Do you know them? Do you feel their pain? Do they have access to you beyond your duty? You pray for them. Why do you think we tend to be quite boundaried and self-preserving in our service? We go, okay, well, I'm on this this week, and then next week, well, I may or may not be around at church, but please don't speak to me because I'm not on duty. Or our home group is off. This is not the night. Tuesday's the night you can get hold of me, not Wednesday. Why do we tend to have that? It was my day off yesterday, and uh, it's a privilege to be employed by the church. I know that most of you aren't. And I love a day off, but I hold it lightly because of this. Because I'm not suddenly not a pastor on my day off. I love prioritizing time with my family. But you know what? Yesterday, one of, one of the men in the, our church's father died. And so I had to go and speak with him. And then another family in the church, their father was rushed to hospital. And my wife and I in the afternoon found ourselves praying with him and you just go, oh, this is so inconvenient. <laughs> Much rather be on the beach. But actually, this is the family. This is the family of God. Paul was not a professional and neither should we be. I think we tend to be a little boundaried with our time for this main reason. You and I, whether we're employed by the church or not, whether we've been Christians for a long time or not, we all fear being used. Used and abused. You know, in those sweet moments of God's presence, we've all had them because otherwise you wouldn't be sitting here where God's just met with you and you just say, oh Lord, you are so good. I will do anything for you. Use me, Lord, use me. And then God really answers that prayer. And we find ourselves coming back a month later saying, Lord, I feel so used. He says, yeah. That's how my son felt. Jesus washed the feet of a denier and a betrayer. He was used. He was used. And I think that we are only able to, to live with this kind of relational investment, not just task oriented if we remember that ultimately our reward is with our Father in heaven and our identity is secure in him. What empowered Jesus to be so relationally invested in a betrayer and a denier, Judas and Peter? What, what was it? John 3 gives us the glimpse. It says, Jesus, knowing that he came from the Father 
and knowing that he was returning to the Father, took out his, off his outer garment and washed his disciples' feet. What enabled Jesus to be used was his identity was secure as a son and the Father, and he knew that his reward was in heaven. My friends, that's the only way that we will continue to invest ourselves in people that don't always say thank you, and don't always reward us. Are you doing all right? You tracking with me? I'm a little bit Pentecostal, so every now and again you can just shout out a little amen if, you, if you're enjoying that. But I'm actually more Presbyterian than Pentecostal, so relax. <laughs> Secondly, we see in, uh, in Timothy, we, we see in Paul this relational investment. We see in Timothy a concern. Let's read that. 19 to 22, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be, listen to this, won't you? Genuinely concerned for your welfare. I have no one else like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. So we see Paul's anxiety, which was actually relational investment, we see Timothy's concern that was for the welfare of the saints. Have you ever thought of those words? I have no one else like Timothy. You know, Paul was often with Silas and Luke. He often traveled with them. Imagine them hearing that or reading that. Really? You got favorites, Paul? You got favorites? I think what Paul was meaning is this that there is no one besides Paul who has personally sacrificed so much to see the well-being of the saints. How do we know that? How do we know that? Well, we know that because in Acts, in the book of Acts, Paul calls Timothy, who's a Gentile, to be circumcised. As, as a commentators say, he was 40 years old because they were going to preach the gospel to a Jewish community. Talk about sacrifice. You and I have had some pain for the people of God, never that kind of pain. Timothy, will you be circumcised? I have none other like Timothy who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. And what Paul is talking about in terms of Timothy's concern is not just like he's just, he's just worried but there's a willingness, there's a high pain threshold to see the people of God thrive. Can I ask you this, in, in, in the light of, of Timothy's concern for the genuine welfare of the saints, what is your pain threshold to see the people of God thrive? What's your pain threshold? I find in myself sometimes I have a much higher pain threshold for saving money, for doing up my house, for doing my backyard, even physical exercise, although you might not think like it, I can sacrifice big time to shed a few pounds. I can sacrifice big time to save up money to buy a house. But somehow, when it comes to the people of God, we just go, oh God, this is so un uncomfortable, this is so painful, I'm out of here. Timothy teaches us that actually a concern, a genuine concern for the people of God means pain. 
And you know what? We never graduate from this. This is not something you do at the lower rungs, you know, if you're a deacon. <laughs> oh, you know, you, you must really, really sacrifice and then one day you'll be like Pastor Steve and then you won't have to. It, it, it doesn't work like that. Days like yesterday just remind me of that. It's just like you never get past just caring for people because their need, the welfare of the saints is to be fully known and fully loved even though they're fully known. And there are ways of doing that in larger crowds, of course. I'm trying to do that from the pulpit. But actually, to recognize the one to remember people's names, to be able to have a conversation in the middle of your task and to stop for an individual. Jesus was amazing at that. Jesus was interruptible. In the middle of ministering to a crowd, doing a task, teaching, feeding, healing, he'd see someone. Zacchaeus, what are you doing up there? I'm coming home for a meal. I mean, Jesus was busy doing the task of ministry. And yet he was interruptible for the one. John 4 talks about Jesus on his, on his way to Jerusalem and he went through Samaria, which was a detour, and he found a woman at the well. And he stopped and had a conversation and, and the Lord opened her heart and revival came to Samaria because Jesus was not so task oriented that he was not interruptible. I've learned this genuine concern for the welfare of people from my mom more than anyone else. My mom and dad have been in ministry all my life, but my dad's a businessman, so he's not paid by the church. And my mom was director of the social welfare department of our city. I always remember going into her office and she had this big poster on it with Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Any of you ever studied that, sociology? Some of you nodding your head. Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It was, it was welfare. What do people need to be well cared for? It was the welfare department. And, and would start, I think, it was shelter. And then it was food. And then it was safety, etc. I once had a conversation with my mom. Mom, what do you think people's deepest needs really are for them to have welfare. When we're talking about the welfare of the saints, she, she said this, Alan, it is to be fully known yet fully loved. That's what people really need. Because you can be clothed, you can have shelter, you can have safety, but actually you will live poor if you're not fully known yet fully loved. Put this into practice as servant leaders. I don't know what you do. I, I should imagine some of you lead worship teams. Some of you have home Bible studies in your, in your homes. Some of you lead kids. Some of you lead greeter teams. In the middle of your task, because we've got to do our tasks well, allow God to interrupt you with someone and look them in the eye and say, how are you doing? No, how are you really doing? Because in the church we have this kind of religious way of saying, oh, I'm blessed, brother. I mean, even this thing of brother, hey, it's, 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 it can be so religious. 
You know, you call someone brother when you can't remember their name. <laughs> yeah, sister, sister, uh, sister. No, 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 how are you really doing? And if they say, no, I'm blessed, I'm doing great. Okay, well, how, how, what does that sound like? You'll, you'll generally, if you take just more than five seconds, you'll find that even if they're doing well, there's something. And then ask this question, how can I help you with that? I tell you, if you do that, you will always have a ministry and you will always have friends. Genuine concern for the welfare of the saints. My friends, that is how a church is built. A church is built not through slick programs. A church is built through people who take a genuine interest in the welfare of the saints. I lead a church, one church, three communities. It's about to be four. I understand administration. I understand marketing. I understand set up and tear down. That's what makes a church awesome. That's not what makes a church healthy. Do you know what? I think I remember when Jesus spoke of the parable of the faithful steward, the reward was well done, good and faithful servant. Doesn't have to be awesome and faithful servant. We want our churches to be awesome. That's great. But are they good? Are they healthy? I tell you what, that is built by people who faithfully take a genuine interest in the welfare of the saints. Can I get a little amen? I've found even with my team, I lead a team of, of pastor elders, a, 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 a staff, uh, a, a deacon team when, when it's all together, it's about 100 people. How do you look after that team? How do you take, take an interest in their welfare? One of the things I've, I've tried to do is with my leadership team, I don't just see them as mountaineers running at the next mountain, because we're always doing the next thing. I mean, we're full of vision. We planted three churches in the last three years. We've just planted a church in Thailand, Chiang Rai. But man, I can be a driver. I felt God say, if you take a genuine interest in their welfare, they are not just mountain climbers taking the next mountain, they are fields that need to be cultivated needed to be tended to, needed to be watered. That's the same with your team. That's the same with your marriage. That's the same with your family. A genuine interest in people's welfare. Finally, finally, we learn from this man with a funny name, Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus's distress. This is a little bit of a Debbie Downer passage in some ways. Paul was anxious. Timothy was concerned, and Epaphroditus was distressed. The amazing thing is that he was distressed. Remember, he was a man. He was distressed because they heard that he was ill. Men, let's be honest. When you and I get sick, we are thinking of no one except ourselves. We are distressed about no one except ourselves. I, I mean, there is nothing like a sick man, right? A man with a man flu is just like so distressed about himself. I'm dying. This guy was distressed, Paul says, because you heard he was ill. Isn't that amazing? What an incredibly selfless guy. I didn't want you to worry. 
when you heard that I was ill, I was distressed that you heard I was ill. Amazing, amazing. That's not what I want to focus on with Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus was not just distressed. He was what I would call an all-rounder. And I want to land with this. Paul taught us relational investment. Timothy taught us genuine concern. Epaphroditus taught us what it means to be an all-rounder. This is what Paul says about him. Epaphroditus, I'm longing to send him to you. Now, now, now here's the interesting thing. Epaphroditus was sent by the church to take care of Paul in prison. That was a difficult and dangerous thing. Prisons in those days didn't lay on everything. You didn't get your nice stripy uh, you know, un- uniform and, and your TV and your food. You relied on outsiders to bring you food and clothing and warmth. And he did that, but then he got sick and he nearly died. In some ways, he's failed his mission. He's, he's going home, but Paul is at pains to honor this man. He says, I want you to receive him with honor. He's going home with a purple heart. He's a, he's a wounded soldier. And you see Paul's incredible love for people. Some of you probably have, like me, seen Paul as this kind of fearless pioneer apostle. This man has got such a soft heart. Remember Paul earlier in the book of Acts, he gets really hard on John Mark for being sick and deserting the mission party. Now, Paul is growing in grace. He says, this man is sick, he's nearly died. Receive him with honor. Receive him as a brother, a worker, a soldier, and a messenger. I want us to land with looking at Epaphroditus, those four aspects, as a helpful grid for us to ask, where am I strong and where am I weak as a servant leader? Let's get real practical now. I think I've gone to the heart. Let's get real practical. A brother. He's a brother. He's a buddy. He's relational. He's the guy that has the long conversation at the water cooler. He's the guy that pays the check when you go for ribs and wings. He's that guy, he's a brother. For ladies, the sister. The warm person who's gonna bake and have you round and put on a cup of tea and and just that kind of person that's comforting. How are you? in the brother-sisterly aspects of your leadership, in the relational aspects of your leadership. I've talked about that. Secondly, he's a fellow worker. My brother, my fellow worker. In other words, he's industrious. He gets the job done. Don't hear what I'm not saying. When I talk about taking a genuine interest and stopping in the middle of your task and asking people, I'm not talking about doing a sloppy job. Because actually, we are called to godly excellence. It was said of Jesus, you do all things well. We represent our creator, God, well. How are you with your work ethic? Are you a person that has great ideas, but you can't implement them, you don't follow through? Are you a person that in the first three months of the fall, it's like, yahoo, it gets to Thanksgiving, and you're just like, I'm out of here. Are you a team player? Are you able to work with other people? 
Do you have to have your way all the time or are you able to work collaboratively? That's all about the stuff of he's a fellow worker. He's not just a brother. He's a fellow worker. How are you with relationship? How are you with industry? Thirdly, my fellow soldier. Fellow soldier. Think about what a soldier is. What does a soldier represent? I think a soldier represents coming under authority, your ability to follow leadership, and courage. Courage. How courageous are you? I find often good brothers often aren't good soldiers. On the team that I lead, I've got some great brothers. I mean, if I want to hang out, or if I want someone to empathize with me, I'll, I'll call that guy. But if I've got a big dream, a big vision that's going to take a whole lot of people, a whole lot of money, that brother is the first to reign on my parade. And actually, I've got a guy who is a decorated purple heart soldier on my team. He's not a great brother, but he's so courageous, and he's so good with following orders, and he's so good with implementation. Are you a soldier, or do you need a shot of Jesus' courage? And then finally, your messenger. Your messenger. Messenger talks of faithfulness to the scripture. Faithfulness to truth, conviction. You might have a vision, you might love people, but you're wanting to do it God's way in his word. He has the deal. Good soldiers aren't always good messengers. Good soldiers wanna just fight, but they often fight dirty. They don't wanna do it God's way. There are very few people that are strong on relationship, good brothers, that are strong on industry, good workers, that are strong on courage, good soldiers, and strong on conviction and faithfulness, good messengers. But I wanna ask you, under Christ, to examine yourself, and in your little notebook, write, brother, soldier, messenger, worker, and score yourself out of five for each of them. Then go to God and say, Lord, this is an area I wanna grow in. This is an area I wanna grow in. Leading a church in North America, I've been here nine years, I've had to learn to be a soldier. Not naturally a soldier, I'm a brother, I'm a worker, I think I'm a messenger. Oh, but to, to learn courage from Jesus, who set his face like flint, endured the cross, scorning its shame. Oh God, give me your courage. Don't look, don't ever look for your perfect niche in the church or niche. I'm looking for my perfect niche. Look for the need. And if the need requires you to be a soldier or a brother or a sister, ask God for grace. He's able to give you that grace. Jesus is our true and better Paul. He was poured out to death for our life. Jesus is our true and better Timothy. He was not just circumcised, he was crucified. He was crucified for our welfare, 
for our welfare. Jesus is a true and better Epaphroditus. He didn't nearly die. He fully died. He fully died. That we might have life. And we follow his way by his power. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for each son and daughter here who've been adopted into your family. And because of your love, because you've poured yourself out for them, they have said, I am not just going to be a receiver in the family of God. I'm going to be a giver. I'm going to be an investor. I'm going to be a builder. I'm going to be a servant, a leader. I thank you. And we come to you, Jesus, Lord of the church. And we ask that you would resource us with the very spirit that empowered you to give your life as a ransom for many, that you would empower us again to serve and love and lead. We cannot do this apart from you. Apart from you, we can do nothing. But with your spirit, O oh God, with your spirit, we can. So bless these people. I pray that you'd help them even as they think of their leadership. Am I a brother? Am I a worker? Am I a soldier? Am I a messenger? Where am I strong? Where am I weak? And I pray that even today you would do some mighty things in hearts that cause people to lunge forward in the kingdom as servant leaders. And everyone said,